Thank you, Nehemiah. I'm not sure where you are, but thank you for... Well, I'm loud, right? It only happened after I got my U.S. citizenship. I got louder. I I hope you will appreciate every week we are going to hear from an ordinary Singaporean who has been transformed by the power of the cross. Um, All this year, we'll be looking at this theme, not ashamed of the gospel. And we're looking at studies in the book of Acts. Now, if you have a Bible with you, it is our privilege to have and to hold these wonderful words of life. I want to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 1. Ollie began it all for us last week while I was in Vancouver developing a Canadian cold. And can I just say that um, on my way back, the most amazing thing happened to me. Um, It was not the flight. It was when I arrived back in Singapore on Friday. You know how the queues are. Very, very long queues for foreigners. But then there's this automated gates. And I thought I'll just, you know, try it. Because Singapore is so friendly. And if if it's wrong for me, I will just say, sorry, don't know, from Canada. Uh, My mistake. So... Right away when I walked into the queue, which was no queue because it's automated, all the poor foreigners were lined up. (laughs) I felt sorry for foreigners for a moment. Then I realized I'm one. But I was in the long queue, so I went right up to the gate and it said scan the passport. So I put my passport in and right away a Singaporean immigration officer started moving towards me thinking, oh, poor foreigner doesn't realize it doesn't work with his passport. But the gate opened up. So I walked in, and then it had a scan for the thumbprint. I put my thumb down, and then the most beautiful sign on the planet said, Welcome home, Ian Bunton. (laughs) So thank you for that. It's good to be back home here in Singapore. If you have your Bibles, or if you want to grab a pew Bible, it's, I think, page 909. I just guessed. Am I close? Because I listened to Ollie's sermon last week, and it was 909. I want to begin by reading the entire chapter. I'll be honest with you, this passage deserves three or four sermons. So you're going to have to listen quickly. I want to read, just by review, the first five verses that Ollie preached on, just so that we can get the whole picture of what was going on in the beginning, the very beginning, when there was no church, how this all started. Beginning in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 5, or sorry, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and the utter ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning this Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a fear field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadelma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And this, let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray together. Father God, in this holy moment, when we have set aside as much as is possible the cares of this world, we invite you to bring clarity to our hearts and to our minds. We invite you to speak to us from your word. Help us to know that we have been in the presence of the Almighty, the King of creation. And as we have gathered in this place Will you not do something in us that cannot be done by a pastor's personality or by a program-driven approach or by sweet songs that we have sung? Will you not do something in us that only you, the Almighty God, can do? Do this for your namesake, we pray. Amen. As you already know, this book of Acts that we have embarked upon, this uh, series is actually the second part of Luke's story of everything that Jesus did before and after his death and resurrection. 
In fact, we could call this, if we wanted to, a gospel sequel or a a good news epilogue. It is the second part of the story that he was telling about Jesus and Jesus' work among his people. Um, His name actually was not Luke. Luke is an English version. The name is Lucas. And uh, this is one of the ways we know that Luke... This medical doctor was not actually a Galilean Jew. Uh, Lucas was a popular name for boys in the southern Italian town of Lucania. He was probably Italian, Jewish, but somehow he heard the gospel. And just like Nehemiah, he was transformed by the power of the gospel. And he began to follow this teacher and write down everything he saw, everything he experienced. And he wrote, as Pastor Ollie said, to a man called Theophilus, a a name that is either literally his name or a title given to him. It means a God lover or lover of God. It's a book that's written to all of those of us who desire to be lovers of God and who live within the context that is post-resurrection. That's the whole problem. I mean, if we were just living after the death of Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be as challenging. But when we live in a context which is post-resurrection, then, as I'm suggesting from this title, which, by the way, is, is not divinely inspired, everything suddenly is crazy. Now, even though it's not divinely inspired, this title, I'm, I'm just suggesting that in, in message in resources, in almost every way, a life had been turned upside down for these followers of Jesus. And first, I want us to notice how diverse this original group was. It was not an affinity group. It was not a homogeneous unit of people from the same town. It was a diverse group of people. The first we will notice And by the way, I know I'm going kind of in the middle, and I will go back to verse 6 in a bit. But first, look at verse 13. There was the 11. As they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These were the 12 minus Judas Iscariot who had already hung himself. They had long been identified by a name other than disciple. They were not identified primarily at this time as disciples of Jesus because we know from Mark's gospel, chapter 3, that huge crowds of disciples were following Jesus. But then in verses 13 and 14 it says, But Jesus went up on the mountain and called to himself Twelve, and they came to him. And these he appointed, whom he also called apostles. The Greek word is apostolos, sent ones. The Latin word, by the way, is missio, missionaries. These are those he called, specifically in verse 14, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. The word caruso, that means literally to call out warning. These were the 11 that remained. But in addition to these 11, verse 14b says there were women. Now, I know in the church today we have some controversy about 
women in ministry. But what is clear from the New Testament is there were women in Jesus' ministry. This is what it says, together with the women. Now, um, Luke chapter 8, this is the same guy, Dr. Lucas, made this observation in verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, Jesus went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve sent ones were with him, the twelve apostles. Also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalena, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. And what did they do? Here's what he says, who provided for them out of their means. This is strange and radical, you see. These were strong, independent, well-to-do women who were supporting the ministry of Jesus and these 12 jobless apostles. They left everything to follow him, right? They were not working. They were trusting in these strong, independent women in ministry, much as I do. She's not here, so I'm not going to mention her. It would be wasted. (laughs) In in fact, Luke in chapter 23 says these women were so loyal, they even followed Jesus right to the cross and observed everything that happened from a distance. The sent ones had run off. But then there's a third group we see in the third part of verse 14, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers... So we know that Jesus had four half-brothers. There was James, the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. There was Joseph Jr. There was Simon, and there was Judas, or Jude, who wrote that little book just before the book of Revelation. He had four brothers and sisters who have not been named, but we knew that something amazing had happened to them. They had been transformed by the power of the gospel because they did not always believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They, up until the resurrection, believed that Jesus was a little off. We, we see it in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Jesus went home. The crowd gathered again. They couldn't even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. The lad is crazy. They didn't believe until the resurrection. This was a diverse group of followers, the only affinity they had was Jesus. But for them and for us, here's what was crazy. First, um, the message was crazy. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 6, but it begins with this little conjunction. So, that's important and it means, therefore, because of what was said previously, this was said. 
And what was said previously? What was said previously is verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them over 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 6. So when they had come together, the disciples said to him, is it at this time you're going to restore our kingdom? Um, Stop trying to convince your friend about the proof. Because these brothers had proof. Forty days with the living Christ touched the holes in his hands, reached out for his side, saw a corpse walking around and eating. For 40 days, he proved his vitality, and taught them on the sovereign rule of God. And then they go, so, so now? Now are you going to restore the sovereign rule of our mighty nation? Now can we wear the red caps that say, make Israel great again? Now are you going to do that? You, you see, they were so bent by their own flesh. Truth came to them and was refracted by their idols. And and that's what happens when I press truth through the idol of my flesh and my own selfish ambition. It bends, it refracts, it's actually no truth at all. By the time I press truth through the arrogance of my intellect, it's actually no truth at all. It's just, it's just bent. It was impossible for them to understand. The, the message was so bizarre. You mean for hundreds of years, for centuries, we've been waiting for national vindication? And, and you're talking about God's rule? We want to be somebody. Like... That's why our mom said to you, you know, can, can my boys be like little princes or you know, give them a little you know, kingdom or something? Like, let them be your consultant. The message was insane because their idols had blocked their hearts from hearing and seeing. And that's why... We need to understand that the good news of the gospel is not that Ian is king or that Donald Trump is president. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord and it is his kingdom he comes to restore, his kingdom of peace and joy and justice. So he says to them, In verses 7 and 8, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. I would have scolded them, but he didn't. It's not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the ends of the earth. So, So here's the two big ideas. To God belongs the authority. It is amazing how much energy we spend in church talking about who is in charge. It is not this pastor. 
The senior pastor is Christ. To him belongs the authority. To us belongs the assignment. And, and here's what we do not fully understand. I, I, I think um, returning to Canada, which, you know, like every developed nation, I include Singapore in this, we, we've had generations of uh, a social contract, right? And, and that social contract informs every generation that if I just work hard and do my best, then I'm going to live better than my parents did. The, the problem in the developed world is we're starting to fear that that may not be true anymore. We're starting to fear that I can work as hard as I possibly can, but my dad bought his first house for 2,000 Canadian dollars. I can't buy a cardboard box in downtown Vancouver for $2,000. And, and see, we bring this to this verse 8. If I work harder than the last guy, then we'll see lots of people come to faith. Right? And, and the only question that I have to ask is, where am I going to work hard? Is it at GBC? Is it in Singapore? Or for some of you, or is it Australia? Or, or the UK? Or, or Canada? Or the US? You see, the point of this is not, where is your Judea? The point is not, where is our Samaria or our Jerusalem, Singapore? That's not the point. The point is this, oh God, where is your power? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Not, not a pastor with you know, charisma, not, not a better program, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And, and this is why it matters. It matters because I don't care how good your personality is. I don't care how skillful your gospel presentation is. When the assignment is to raise the dead, you're not going to do that with your great personality. I've been around dead people. They don't wake up when I walk in the room. When the assignment is raise the spiritually dead, we need raise the dead power. That comes from his spirit. It doesn't come from somebody's resume. It doesn't come from our abilities. <laughs> okay, I need to move on. Uh, there's... Um, that crazy resource, his spirit, not my personality, not my effort. Third, verses 9 through 11, this, this assignment. And, and when they had said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes. And I, I imagine they might have been, um, oh, that's just people looking at you when you have this assignment. Um, 
I'm, I'm not following my outline. Sorry, brother. Sorry for all of you taking notes. Um, here, maybe they were singing, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Right? They were having some mean worship right there because, you know, Jesus was elevating and, and clouds reached down and lifted him up and they were, whoa, whoa. And right in the middle of that amazing worship service, these two men dressed in white said, you men of Galilee, what are you, what are you staring up at the heavens for? He's coming back just as he left. You, you see, we're, we're here for the assignment. That is it. It, it, it's, it's not we're here for worship. It's not we're here for listening to better Bible lessons. We're, we're here for this assignment until every nation is worshiping. It's not worship. Right? So when, when you realize that, it's terrifying. Right? That, that's why you know, pastoral ministry is not for spiritual midgets because um, every single thing we are assessed on requires God's intervention. We cannot make it happen. You cannot make it happen. It requires a sovereign God condescending in mercy and pouring out his resources in and through his people. So, what do you do? Here's three things quickly, and in the five minutes we have left. Verse 12, we obey. I like this, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, why did they need to return to Jerusalem? You heard Pastor Ollie. Verse 4, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Because sheep, you know, just wander off. Just just look at that grass right there. There's some grass, and, and, and grass is like a food court, right? When there's a queue, everybody gathers, right? So... All the sheep were wandering from one clump of grass to the... And before they know what they're doing, they're like, you know, what does it say? A Sabbath day's journey away. Now, now what um, Luke is doing is introducing us to an Aramaic idiom. You know, an idiom is a collection of words, the meaning which, of which is changed when the words are put together. For, for example... All of us know what rain is. It's the monsoon season. We know what a cat is. We know what a dog is. But when someone says it's raining cats and dogs, it doesn't literally mean we're in danger of being hit by a flying feline, right? It just means it's raining really heavily. And this is what Lucas is using, an Aramaic idiom. They were just a Sabbath day walk away, which, according to Jewish law, on the Sabbath day, the maximum you could walk is 2,000 cubits, which is just under a kilometer. So they wandered off right up to the maximum of the law. But no further. We're good Jewish boys. He, he hears the point. 
the, the difference between where I am and where Jesus wants me to be is just a Sabbath day walk. The, the difference between absolute obedience and where I am now is just a hop, skip, and a jump. For some of you, it's just three steps down into that grave. For others, it's just three steps into the Lord's embrace. It's not far, but it requires us to turn and head back to where he calls us. So the first thing they did is they obeyed. Then notice the, third th- or the second thing they did in verses 13 and 14. They, they prayed, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, all of them together. All of these in one accord, verse 14 says... They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. With one accord, they devoted themselves to one thing, crying out to God. Now, I know that before long, they would devote themselves to many things. They would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and witness, to singing songs and spiritual psalms. But right then... At the moment when you're between the assignment and having the resource for the assignment, all they did was cry out to God, Mercy, Lord. Come near, O God. We've returned. We wait on you. Billy Graham once called J. Edwin Orr the greatest authority in history on religious revivals in the Protestant world. Edwin Orr studied every great movement of God in the 200 years leading up to his generation. And here is his final observation on prayer. He wrote, There has never been a revival in any country that was not begun in united prayer. That's only half of it. Here's the second half. And no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of those prayer meetings. Now, I'm not trying to guilt everybody to come Fridays once a month. I'm saying, when you're alone, when you're driving, when you're on the MRT, are you crying out, oh God, come and be in me what I am not. Fill me with your holiness with the sweet aroma of Christ, will you not realize how he longs so to hear the heart cries of his people? You're waiting on God. He's waiting on us. First they obeyed. Then they prayed. And finally, they elevated, meaning they lifted up God's word. Now, I'm going to say a hard thing here. In those days, Peter. I love Peter. I identify with him. He's the first to talk. He's the, I'm going to follow you anywhere, Jesus. I will die for you. Unless there's a slave girl around a campfire, then slave girls make me nervous. I'll deny ever knowing you. He's that kind of impetuous, you know, shoot from the lip kind of guy. And, and he's there. They're all together praying. And then suddenly, he stands up and says, Brothers... The company was about 120. 
The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand at the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And in verse 20, this illiterate, impulsive fisherman suddenly remembers something he memorized from synagogue school, and he spouts out his first sermon. And and honestly, it was a bit of a mess. Uh, we, we, we all have our first sermons, right? I keep mine, and I read it every once in a while, and look in the mirror and watch my face turn red. It's horrible. My first sermon, I preached it in seminary class. I, it was titled, Where's the Beef? <laughs> my seminary prof wrote on it, C minus, Where's the Meat? He wasn't, he wasn't impressed. You know, so I was like a Peter guy. I was ready to go. I let it out there. He lets it out there. He takes two obscure fragments taken from the Psalms, yes, 40 chapters apart, and he links it together. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's blood money. And, and see, here's the thing. Matthew's already told this story. Judas took that blood money and he threw it in the temple. But because it was used to betray a man to his death, they couldn't use it in the temple. It was dirty money. It was unclean money. So it was used to purchase the field. He was so despairing that he went out and hung himself. But here's Peter. He's got a better sermon illustration. No, he ran out and fell in the field and split open his bowels and all his Entrails spilt all over the place. Now that's a story. That's an action movie illustration. Now, um, I'm, I'm just saying, if, if it was me and I was putting this canon together, I would have said, you know, guys, those stories aren't the same. Right? Like, I'm, a, I'm kind of a visionary. I'm, I'm thinking, like, 2,000 years from now, there's going to be some guy on a small island, let's say Singapore. He's only reading the Bible to find contradictions. We've got to clean that up a bit, right? That's what I would have done. So why would a sovereign God leave this in here to authenticate his word? Because a broken boy like Ian needed to know that the power of the message wasn't dependent upon the performance of the messenger. And and a congregation like GBC needs to see the difference in this man in one chapter. When Jesus comes again to Peter and fills him up with his spirit, the spirit of revelation, we need to see that man stand up again and preach and see that difference. That this is why God's resources matter. If we're going to be on God's assignment, we need His resources. I uh, wonder if you notice this one big takeaway. It occurred to me that nobody in that room was saying, okay, now, hey, um, how are we going to grow this thing? Uh, 
I mean, we got what? Um, is the ushers, are you counting? One, 120? I mean, counting women. One, 120. Well, not knocking women. I know we appreciate the meal. Thank you. But we're 120. I mean, people have options, right? So how, how are we going to get this group bigger? You know, there's options everywhere. Just a Sabbath day walk, and people can go to a bigger, bigger group. So what's our plan to grow this? Nobody said that. Do, do you get that they were not looking for more followers? They, they were not looking for more bums to feel the seat and be you know, spoon-fed by their new preacher, Peter. They, they weren't looking for that. They weren't looking for followers. They were looking for men who were not ashamed of the gospel. Men who would be with Christ. Who would speak on his behalf. Who would be his ambassadors. So, so I want to ask, what are, what are we looking for, GBC? As we've made it over that extraordinary hump, as you have sacrificially been blessed by God to, to bless the nations, as we build this building, are we looking for more seats, really? Or, or are we crying out and saying, God, you know, make us different? Well, we don't want the crowds to come and expect another spoon fed meal, but, but come in power. So, so that we would know that we've been in the presence of an almighty creator God who gives us gifts we didn't get from our parents, who does his work without our burnout. Will you not say, God, we want more? I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. And as we come to the time of closing... I wonder if you uh, sensed yourself in the biblical narrative. I do this all the time. Because I'm the guy who wandered off. I'm the guy like Nehemiah who needed somebody to chase me down. I'm grateful they did. But I wonder if this afternoon you realize, man, it's, it's just a stone's throw into the pleasure of God. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump. It's just a Sabbath day's journey back into the embrace of God. Maybe you've been a member for a long time, but somehow you just feel dry and weary and exhausted. Do you know that God's not asking you to share out of discipline. He's asking you to share out of affection of joy, just out of the overflow of the realization the price has been paid. You are free because of his grace. If that gives you joy, that's all it is. Will you obey Turn to him and say, Lord, I am, I'm, I'm coming home. Home to your embrace. Some of you have been holding off on baptism. Serious, it's not a step of faith. 
Well, you think Jesus was baptized because he needed to demonstrate faith? No, he needed to demonstrate obedience because after that step of obedience, the cross was coming. Some of you are trying to walk when you haven't started crawling. Take that step. Talk to a pastor or an elder or a deacon. Talk to a friend and say, man, I want you to walk with me through this. I need to get back to Jerusalem. Or maybe you're here and you have never, ever got up off the throne of your life and let Jesus sit down and be Lord. There is no more important decision you will ever make in your life than getting up and kneeling down so that the king of creation can be all that you need him to be in your life. So he can fill you up so that for the first time in your life you could know contentment and peace and joy. A Sabbath day's journey. Just turn to him and say, God, Receive me now as your child. I'm turning from my ways and turning toward Jerusalem. Fill me with your presence. Not that I'm holy, but make me so for your name's sake. Amen.